Welcome to the Conscious Clinician Podcast. We have honest conversations about the triumphs and challenges of pelvic health physical therapy. Each week, we bring you inspiration and practical tips to thrive in your work. And now, here's your hosts, Dr. Monica Stefanovich and Dr. Sammy Steele. Hey, Monica. Hey, Sammy. Monica, today I wanted to talk to you about an important topic that continues to come up for me, which is this feeling of being a fixer. A feeling like you need to be somebody's hero, a feeling like you need to be the one that solves all of their problems, and trying to tease apart where this comes from. Mm. So, Sammy, when did you start noticing the fixer? I think it's been there forever. It's interesting looking back now that I am more aware of it. It's interesting to look back and feel like you've been doing this for a long time. I feel like it's been something that's ingrained into me as a female. It's been ingrained into me in my schooling, not just as a PT, but just in general. I think we're kind of taught that there is a problem and here's the solution. And there's always this fix it approach. And especially Mm -hmm. when it comes to healthcare, we're presented with problem, solution, condition, Mm -hmm. treatment. And we start to forget that there's a lot of shades of gray that influence why somebody is not improving. It's not a direct mechanical approach with a human being. So when we have this idea that we can fix anybody, that is a ton of pressure. I'm starting to notice it more and more and pick apart where it comes from for myself, but it is something I'm continuously unraveling. Yeah. And I wonder what about it shows up in your clinical practice? Like, how did you first start thinking of the fixer or fixing people? And when did that become conscious for you? I have a few different patients that come to mind. I'm sure we've all had that patient who comes into our office and they have a story. They're telling you about this long history of treatment from different doctors and maybe other pelvic floor PTs. Maybe they've had chronic, chronic pain. I'm thinking of a specific patient that I had a year ago who had interstitial cystitis and had been to so many different practitioners and was in so much pain and so miserable. And when she came to see me, she told me her story and I could feel in myself that the immediate impulse was, I'm going to be the one that solves this. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be your hero. I'm going to fix you. Now I can see that for what it is. I can see that for the reaction and the impulse that it is. In the past, I, I think I felt it, but it wasn't quite so conscious, you know, but I've been doing that for so long. I don't think it's a new thing, but I started to realize when I started working with these really complex chronic pain patients that that wasn't going to work anymore. It's easy Mm -hmm. to fix somebody who has a really straightforward problem. Maybe they've got a little bit of Achilles tendinopathy and you get them strengthened and stretched and they're all good to go. But when you've got somebody who's been in pain for the last 10 years and they've developed these patterns, it's not as simple as I wave my magic wand and you're fixed. And All of the ideas that I had about being able to fix somebody came from more of a simple case. And when Mm -hmm. it starts to get complicated, it doesn't work anymore. And I think that 
it starts to just be like, you're just kind of trying to work on the problem and making no headway. It's so frustrating. You're really just wondering what you've done wrong in that scenario. And I think when I started to take a step back from these patients and go, what is going on? What am I doing wrong with them? I started to realize that my expectations of them and of myself were not realistic at all. And Mm. I was expecting a fix when the fix was not there. I agree so much how you hit on the pitfalls of pathology and kinesiopathology and thinking that, well, if we just fix this person's posture or if we just fix this person's muscle tone, that their condition is going to get better. And I think that was ingrained in us in PT school. And that makes sense. I mean, if we're starting off in a new profession, how many people are going to say to you like, hey, you actually are in this weird gray space where people have all these various facets for why they do or don't get better. And I think medicine rests on what we can prove and what we can study. And those things are easier to understand and they lend themselves well to the scientific method. And so we have more data, we have more information about those things because you can study muscle and tendon and the composition of cartilage a lot easier, maybe not easier, but I think you can wrap your head around it in a way that is more straightforward than understanding the complexities of human change, human behavior, pain psychology, and and try to integrate all of that. And in a sense, I am glad that I started off with an approach that at least gave me an understanding of that framework. And I think I started to wrestle with the fixer on the surface level when I just knew that what I was doing wasn't working. And at first, I blamed it on the patient, like we've described in earlier episodes, And I wasn't really looking at it as a guide because I just thought, well, either I need to learn something else or you need to get it together and do it. And I'm trying to think of when, you know, the fixer became part of my vocabulary. And I think it goes back to working with a coach who started talking about codependency and started really engraving this understanding that we can't change people, which is tough. Essentially, part of our job is like, how do we help people change, which semantically is different. We change people and how do we help people change are two very different questions. Definitely. There's a lot more humanity in one than the other. Helping somebody change is acknowledging their humanity, acknowledging that they're an autonomous person independent from your instructions of them. It's so easy when you're a fixer to look at them as an object to be fixed and not as Mm. a person who has their own struggles and who has their own story and who's gone through their own stuff. I think it's that's such an important point is that being a fixer is bad for everybody. I think of all the patients that I've had success with, and in a way, they've all helped me feel like, yeah, I am a great fixer. Like, I do know how to help people. 
And I, I don't want to say that that's always damaging. I think yes and no. To always have this as part of your identity in a way sets you up to approach all your relationships from the lens of what am I going to do for you? And that can be draining. And I think to your point, we're already set up for that. And when we're the ones who are trying to always be giving, at what point do we start to set clear boundaries between ourselves and our patients? At what point do we hold them accountable? Or at what point do we have compassion for them when their journey to change or healing isn't looking so linear? It's incredible what being a fixer will do to your boundaries with patients. Mm. Because if your identity is, I have to fix you, that's my prime objective, that's my prime motivation, that's what we're here for. It's really hard to set clear boundaries around your time, right? I think that shows up for me a lot in time management. I have those patients who are struggling a lot and who aren't getting better. And I feel like it's a personal failing on my part. So I feel like, well, even though we had 45 minutes, I don't feel like I've given enough to this person. So I'm just going to run over for a few minutes and make sure that I've given them an extra 10 things to do so that they Mm -hmm. leave getting their money's worth and that I did something for them. When Mm -hmm. in reality, all I'm doing is running behind on my time, feeling overwhelmed, overloading the patient with too many things to process in Mm -hmm. one session. And it's not good for us. It's not good for the interaction. But I think that this idea that you have to be fixing things all the time erodes your sense of personal boundaries around the session and how you're running it. And suddenly it's not about what's best for today, but it's, I haven't done enough. I'm not doing enough. What more can I do? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it puts so much more responsibility on you as the clinician, which I think is an essential part of what we have identified together in our struggle is at what point are we doing so much that the patient doesn't even have the room to step in to their own healing and their own decision making? Because I know when I'm in fix-it mode, I am not as curious. I'm looking for information because I want the information that will fit into my cluster, my syndrome, my treatment algorithm. I, I want information. However, I'm not curious. Curiosity leads me to spend more time listening and spend more time asking my patient to elaborate. I know when I'm in fix-it mode, I'm usually cutting into what somebody says and interrupting. Like they say one thing and I'm already like, okay. Or I'm trying to give them education. If it's a new patient evaluation and I have been pulled into fix-it mode or what I've called like superwoman Sally for myself (laughs) sometimes, when I feel superwoman kicking in, I'll be in an evaluation Someone shares with me something abnormal, right? And all of a sudden, I'm explaining to them how we could work on that thing. 
So let's say they've been referred for urinary incontinence and I'm doing a pelvic floor screen and I find that they have bowel dysfunction. They're like, oh yeah, you know, I've, I've had IBS for years. And I'm like, well, did you know that our dear Lord and Savior pelvic PT can help with all of that? <laughs> um, and you know what? I, I want to draw a line here and say that educating people and telling them about their options that's not what I'm rambling against because there's definitely a time and a space for that, but it's rather the energy with which I step into that. You know, it's a little bit more, I always think of the word impulsive when I think of fix it mode. I think of this sense of urgency that comes with it. Maybe that's better than impulsive rather than saying, hey, I'd like to talk about how all these things are linked or can we talk about this? It's more like I'm telling you, oh, well, yeah, we could fix that. Yeah, yeah, we could do that too. Oh, everything. We we got it all. And usually if I'm in fix-it mode, I have made that type of statement before I've collected all the data. And that's kind of how I know I'm in fix-it mode. Because I haven't taken their full history and stepped back and said, all right, here's the 10,000 foot view on how these symptoms are linked. It's like, I'm telling them that I can help them in the middle of even trying to take a full history. I don't even know yet what all their bowel dysfunction is. And they throw out the words IBS and constipation. And I thought, yeah, that's in my ballpark. So I think when I'm in fix-it mode, I feel this sense of urgency with everything that I do. It actually feels quite stressful for me and my body. That's like another place I've learned to sense this is, and for a while, honestly, all my patient sessions felt this way. So (laughs) there's the early part of my career, it's like everything felt stressful whenever I was with a patient. Um, And over time that has changed, but now I recognize it as like a very sympathetic state for myself. You know, um, I'm getting sweaty all over. I am like just more rushed. I I know that my breathing is more shallow and fast. Um, What else happens? I, I think it's like this sense of like, I get really hot and activated and kind of like antsy um, and just like, okay, yeah, you know, we got to do the thing. Like you got to learn how to do this thing, whether it's an exercise or a technique. Um, And I try to jump to solutions way faster. Like sometimes I would even just have a patient come back in for their session and say, I felt more pain this week. And they'd be like, yeah, I don't know if the exercise is helping. I don't know if they're not. And immediately I would be like, okay, yeah, you know, we can change the exercises, like we can do this thing. And, and I'm already jumping to fixing it. And I haven't fully gotten all the information that might help me. I haven't reassessed an asterisk sign if I have any with this person, which hopefully I've got something. So I haven't reassessed their function to see how that matches with their report. I haven't dug deeper into questions about their week, what was different about this week, which might have nothing to do with exercises. And especially if it's early on in treatment, they might not even realize that stress could be a factor or what they eat or drink could be a factor quite yet. 
And so I would end up spinning my wheels. Honestly, being a fixer early on, I found to be pretty inefficient. I spent a lot of time doing things and I don't think I was always picking the most helpful thing for a person because sometimes I was prescribing a solution or a fix, trying on a fix before I could step back and really see the full picture. Monica, are you me? I think you were just describing <laughs> my entire life right now. <laughs> wow. That was, that um, actually blew my mind a little bit. Um, the, God, the description of the impulsiveness of it is so spot on, at least in my view. Yeah. I mean, I, I get the yeah. same feeling of I have to address this now. And it's like, yeah, I had to jump on it. It's this insane impulse that I get when I have that same exact thing that you're describing with the subjective, right? I'm seeing somebody for urinary incontinence or urinary urgency or something like that. And they disclose that they're not drinking enough water. And I'm like, well, let me tell you how much water you should bring drinking. Like, <laughs> did you know that you should be having X number of ounces per day? And I start going on this tirade and they're like in the middle of a sentence going, well, I, I was just trying to tell you my routine. And that might not be the most important thing to address that day. I operate as if I'm never going to see them again and I have to give them everything I possibly can in that one session that I have. And it's just, it's exhausting and it's overwhelming. And I see it reflected mm -hmm. in my notes later when I'm writing out all of the things that I went over in patient education and all of the things that I did with them. And I'm like, how is it possible for anyone to fit in this many things in one session and do it well? And the answer is you can't. Um, you're just jumping mm -hmm. from thing to thing. And it's incredible to see that impulsiveness from a stepped back perspective and realize how disorganized and insane it seems. I find that for myself too, I feel like when I'm in that fixer mode, I make a lot more assumptions and I think part of that's because I'm not mm -hmm. listening very well, like you described. I find that I tend to ask more leading questions, even today, right? I mean, this still happens to me. It's not like I'm immune to this stuff. You know, I was feeling a little flustered this afternoon and um, running a little late with a patient. And he comes in and tells me that his hip is, is sore. And I was like, oh, well, is that because you walked today? <laughs> did not tell me why his hip was sore. You know what I mean? Like I'm asking him a question that's leading and he was like, yeah, probably. But he could have come up with an entirely different answer that may have been way more insightful. And I'm catching it a little earlier now, which is it's still coming out of my mouth and I'm still asking the question, but I'm noticing it right after I ask it. Oh, that was a leading question. But I find that when I'm in that fixer mode, I want the information now and I want to do something with it and I'm ready to go and I mm -hmm. want to take action and I haven't gotten the full picture. It almost feels like this kind of like reactive, like I'm looking for something to do so I can help this person and I'm not taking the time to put the full picture together and get that 10,000 foot view, so to speak. Yeah, I, I hear you with the leading questions. I think that's a huge call out. That is a pretty classic sign that you're in fix-it mode. What are some other signs? I do think it's jumping in. It's not listening thoroughly. It is asking leading questions. It's also 
giving the patient treatments that may not even reflect their values, that may not be meaningful to them. To your point of discussing the water intake with someone with some type of incontinence or urgency, that might be the most important thing. Yet it sounds like when we jump in that quick, we don't really know that yet. And we don't even know if it's the most bothersome symptom to them. So when it comes to your patient, it's understanding what is most important to them and then figuring out how that ties into the clinical picture they have. I think we can get this too when we get excited about new techniques. When you come back from a course and you've learned something new and and you just want to do it on everybody. I remember when I took a course on visceral mobilization with Ramona Horton, who I was just like, oh my God, you're amazing. And I came back and I just thought, if I just mobilize these people's colons, everything will be fine. You know, (laughs) we just got to go through and mobilize it. And again, I think this instinct for us to want to hang our hats on something is just a part of being human. Our jobs are really uncertain and they're really different every single day, even though we encounter the same problems over and over and over again. It's always different. The puzzle changes every single day. You're never putting in the same orientation of the puzzle twice. So I think our chase for certainty makes sense. I also think, you know, what is there to do if you're not fixing people? Our system wants productivity. It wants efficiency. Our healthcare system asks, what did you do today? What are the things that you can write down that you made happen? And I think that when we shift ourselves away from fixing, there's probably fewer things on that list that are more meaningful. If you're working with insurance, I don't want you to lie. I want you to really think about what you're doing in a new way. It's like you don't have to do 15 exercises because you taught someone how to breathe and you could build that in a variety of different ways that's still really meaningful to you as a provider and still honors that you did something with that patient that day. Although it requires a different, I even think a different language as to how you document it. And I think, you know, our healthcare system that we operate in kind of contributes to this. I agree. And I struggle with that too. I I struggle with those sessions where somebody might be going through something really intense and maybe it's more of a talking session Maybe, you know, you have a patient who is having a lot of pain and they're very fearful about what the PT treatments might entail or they're unsure about dilators and you're discussing with them what all of that means. It can be kind of demoralizing sometimes when you have a session like that and then you're thinking, what change did I make today? What asterisk sign did I measure and remeasure and make improvements on? And you're, you're left sitting there thinking, did I do anything? Did I fix anything? Am I effective? Am I a good PT? Am I worthwhile as a person? You go down that rabbit hole of shame because you feel like you have to be producing outcomes all the time. I think that that absolutely leads us into that paradigm where we have to be fixing people. It leads us into some uncomfortable positions too. 
the example that I'm thinking of right now is if I have a man that I'm working with after a prostatectomy and he comes to see me and he's saying that he has urinary incontinence and erectile dysfunction and he wants to recover from these things after his prostatectomy, my impulse is to talk about the research and to say, oh, there's all these things that we can do to work on this and this has been shown to be this effective and I'm trying to put a positive spin on things. But sometimes I take a step back and I wonder, does that also put a false expectation in the patient's mind of how much better they could get? Maybe this is a man who had erectile dysfunction leading into his prostatectomy and he already had a poor prognosis. Maybe nobody's told him that and maybe he's expecting that he's going to recover. And not that you want to tell somebody you're not going to recover from this, but I also don't think it's fair to keep beating your head against a wall and pretending like this is going to get all better without letting the patient know. I think that that's the struggle of being a fixer too, is you want things to be sunshiny and and a linear progression all the time when it's not always that way. People don't always get better. And I think it puts us in a really weird position. Information is worthwhile. Some of the men that I've talked to said, it would have just been nice if somebody had told me to expect these things. If somebody had told me to expect penile shortening after this surgery, or if they've told me to expect that I'd have erectile dysfunction for a year or two. And maybe that's the value that we can offer is that information and that knowledge that they're not completely blindsided. But I don't think that fits into our model. That's an area of gray that I really struggle with. And you bring up a great point because you're saying, what point does offering someone a sunshine approach actually contradict reality? And I think when your only view is, how do I fix them? How do I fix them? How do I fix them? Sometimes you don't know how to offer that well-rounded view in a way that isn't crushing. Maybe that's an art form, but I think that when you give up being a fixer, it's easier to step back and to see, you know what? We need someone else on the team. The other example I think of, Sammy, is working with someone who has high anxiety or depression or a history of trauma, and they're coming in for pelvic pain, and they're not working with someone on that, and it is evident that they have not worked through it. And when I have been deep into fix-it mode, I really believe that I will be able to pull them through single-handedly if we just do the right things. And I underestimate how much support and how much benefit they could get from working with a multidisciplinary team. And I have to say that there have been times where I have worked with people who, at this point in my career, if I saw I would very quickly be offering referrals out for other people so that we could all work together because we cannot own everything. And I think that's a pitfall of being deep into this fixer complex. You start to think that you can take on everything. That's where Superwoman Sally comes from. It's like, oh yeah, I got it. You know, we'll, we'll fix all of the things all together. This brings up for me that The fixer does have some benefits. 
we don't just do something that is outwardly terrible in all different ways. That's not how humans work at all. So we're either doing it because it's a survival strategy, which could have happened at a very early age. Maybe you were the the young responsible one, the little adult in the family, or you were caring for other people. And so this responsibility got placed on you or you took it on very young. But there are some rewards to it. The Nagoski sisters talk about this in the book Burnout. They talk about it as human giver syndrome. There's a certain reward praise that our society gives us when we are good givers, when we go above and beyond and we do all the things. Our companies also support that. You know, company culture, if you're a good worker, you go above and beyond 110%. Like who is celebrated? It's the person who makes the phone calls they don't have to and stays late and bakes everybody cookies on top of that. It's not that I don't want people to work. It's that I want to make sure that if you're doing all those things, you have the bandwidth for it, that you are still taking care of yourself throughout that. Some people get rejuvenated through some of these things, like baking for them is a real treat, a real joy and pleasure, and that's amazing. I think we will all encounter cases where we're, we're going to want to put in more than what the clock, quote unquote, allots us for working with that person. And I want to celebrate those things too. The beauty and humanity, I appreciate that. What I am hesitant of (laughs) is the people who are overextending themselves and giving too much. And they get celebrated. I have never seen an employee of the month that was like, this person has excellent boundaries. (laughs) Like, they integrate their work-life balance well. They feel like they're thriving in their work. And they have life outside of work. I mean, that's not the person that we talk about. And I think there's still a stigma that if you're going to be drawing those types of boundaries around work, you're not really a good worker. You don't really care that much. I think in some ways it's shifting and in some ways it's a concept that's still lodged in there because so many people benefit from you being a giver. So All the time when I read about this in personal development, it always says when you stop overgiving, there will be people who will be upset about it because you are no longer over offering. And so what they were benefiting from is is now gone. It might mean, for example, that some things start dropping off your plates because you're not trying to keep up in the air 12 plates. So something is going to have to fall off of it rather than you giving your mental and emotional energy to it no matter what. I think sometimes employers aren't happy with it because you start saying, you know, no, I'm not going to treat patients every half hour. And sometimes that looks like a total mismatch between you and the company. You go on to find different work elsewhere, and that's probably for the best. But there are benefits to it. I got to say that it feeds the ego. It feeds the ego for sure. Gosh, it feels good to feel like I'm needed and I did this. 
But in a way, like when I have felt like the fixer and someone offers me a compliment, I don't know if it's just me, it doesn't settle mm-hmm. well. Like it doesn't, I, I actually have a hard time accepting that compliment compared to when I know I've really been with someone through the journey or, you know, I, I don't know. There's something different about it. Yeah. I find when I get those kind of compliments, like, oh my gosh, you really helped this thing and you fixed my problem. There's part of me that's like, did I though? Or did you just heal on your own? The human body is so resilient Mm -hmm. and so able to recover from injury that did I just support you through the process and maybe offer you a little bit of direction and you probably would have been fine either way? Or did I fix you? And I think that's where I I struggle with those Mm -hmm. compliments because I I don't truly know if I fixed them. It doesn't sit very well, like hearing that. I think that a much better compliment that I get is, thank you so much for explaining that to me. Or I learned so much from this session. Or you taught me how to feel these muscles in a way I've never felt before. That feels good because it's about my performance. And I can go, oh, yeah, I did teach that really well. You know what I mean? It feels like a different compliment than you fixed me, you're the fixer. And it just it feels like bullshit sometimes when I hear that, even though it does feed the ego in a way, too. You know, it's like I love it and I hate it. (laughs) Especially if it's someone who wants to keep coming back forever and you know that you're almost their lifeline in a way when you find yourself in that situation. It's like oh man, you have the power within you. And I think the beauty of this is as you wake up to it, you don't have to make your patient change. You don't have to be like, hey, you need more self-efficacy. But rather you start to step back. You start to wonder, what could this person discover? How can I support that discovery when we help people have their aha moments, the change is so much better. And, and it's back to that question of how do we support their change? Maybe it's asking them, what do you know about dyspareunia? What do you know about pelvic pain? Which is one of my favorite questions to ask at the end of the subjective. I think it's a moneymaker because you figure out what they know. And you ask them, well, can we talk about that a little bit? Can I share some of what I know with you? And now you have the floor to open up that conversation. And that usually leads to them asking more questions. They become more engaged with that type of evaluation rather than this, okay, I've got your subjective, now I will perform my objective, now I will give you your prognosis and your diagnosis, and then I will make sure to give you your home exercise program or plan, and then at the end, I will ask you if you have any questions. You just spent 30 to maybe 60 minutes showing that person that they are not a collaborator in the process. They are a body that you are going to do things to, Oh, and by the way, what do you think of it? I mean, to me, that's not collaboration. That's not informed consent. That's not truly being with them. It's it's just moving them through a process that, again, you hold the keys to. 
that you are the giver of and it deprives both of you of your higher responsibilities. Again, us being a guide, them being a seeker, them being a, a person experiencing their pain for who knows what. You know, I think in a spiritual perspective, we don't know what this person's journey is supposed to look like. And by ensuring that we fix them at all costs, regardless of whether they do or don't want to be a part of that process, I think we actually impede their journey. Absolutely. I think about those people who have been through a journey, a long journey. They've been to so many different providers and so many different treatments and thought about this problem for so long. It almost feels patronizing and disingenuous to be offering this solution when they've tried. It's not that they haven't tried to fix this problem and suddenly you're waltzing in and saying, I have this magic key. I'm going to fix it. It's so arrogant to, to do that. And I, I, I could imagine from the patient perspective, if you walk into an appointment like that, you would probably feel not heard. And I know that in times where I've mm. offered this fix-it solution, somebody's telling me their story and I, I respond with, oh, well, there's definitely lots that we can work on with that and we can do this and we can do that. I haven't taken the time to go, wow, that sounds really hard. I'm sorry that happened to you. I'm mm. skipping that part and I'm robbing them of that experience, assuming that I know better than them when they're the ones living in their own body. And that sucks. Mm. Yeah, you're not listening mm -hmm. again. So, Monica, I also had another question. You touched on a few things earlier about what it feels like in your body when you're in fix-it mode. I think it's mm -hmm. an important thing to continue to talk about. Like, what are the signs that you feel? What's going on? Are there any other signals that you get? This is something that is hard to recognize at first. And I think the more information that you can share about what it feels like, the more people can start to recognize it in their own practice. Mm. Well, one way you might recognize it early on is a patient session ends and you just feel like, oh, this person needs to do more. I'm a very feeling-based person. It feels really uncomfortable in my body. It's like I'm one I want them to step up to the plate more. I feel tired because I was just performing for an hour or 45 minutes, whatever it was, trying to dance around them and show them all the bells and whistles. So one, I'm, I'm probably tired. Two, I'm probably mad at this person in a way. And your relationship to anger is a whole nother thing for us to explore. But it's like you want them to get it together, you know, and you might just straight out be mad. Just be like, oh, they're not following through. I don't believe that they're going to do it again. I think dread before a session is a big one, which could be other things. But I'd be really curious if you dread it, why? And if your answer is something about oh, I just don't know what to do with this person. It's probably that you're in fix-it mode. 
Again, you think that you are responsible for having all the answers. I think those are the big things that come to mind. Those are great ones. I I definitely experienced the dread aspect myself, and that resonates with me. The other thing that really resonated with me was this aspect of performing for the patients. Mm -hmm. It really does feel like a performance. And I notice in myself, you know, along with the fixer comes the people pleaser, right? That person who is Mm -hmm. bubbly and smiling and making fun conversation. And I find that I am not being as genuine as I could be because I'm trying to make it fun and make it exciting and be that exciting presence that they want, even though they're not coming to see me for a show, they're coming to see me because they're in pain. But for some reason, I I sometimes translate that to, I've got to be this bubbly person for them. And so when I find those sessions where I'm laughing and smiling a a lot, and it doesn't match up with how I'm feeling, (laughs) that's a big disconnect that makes me think that I'm in fix it mode. A hundred percent. I you are describing experience that I know so well. I think inauthenticity is part of it too. There's been research about how if you are behaving in a way that doesn't match up with your internal state, it's not good for you. There's been research done on retail workers who are being forced to smile and be bubbly in their jobs and they're miserable and it elevates your blood pressure and it's you know bad for your cortisol levels and it's not a healthy thing and I find that I step away from those interactions I feel wiped out like I feel physically not good that's Mm -hmm. a big sign for me that I'm in that fix-it mode and that people-pleasing mode another thing that goes hand in hand with that is this feeling of being overly invested in their progress good or bad When I have somebody who comes in and they tell me, you know, I'm feeling a lot better. I'm feeling really good. And I go, oh my gosh, that's so great. I'm so excited for you. I feel that bubbling up. And that's a reaction that it's not that I don't want to be excited for them, but I'm overly invested in that. I was hoping that they would tell me that they were better. And then when they told me, I was like, yes, you're better. I made you better. I fixed you. And that doesn't feel great. And here's the next yeah. thing I'm going to do. Yeah. Usually, or on the flip right? side of it too, they come in and they say, I'm not better. I'm doing worse. Something happened. And I'm like, oh no, I'm like upset about it. And I feel like I failed. And like, those are the two things that I find in myself a lot. And that right there, I have to go like, okay, it's fine. Like I got to take a little step back and see this more from an observer's perspective so I can hold space for this person who's actually going through it because it's not about me, but I'm making it about me. And for me, I picture myself in a bubble and I picture myself as separate from the other person because for some reason, I'm too tuned in to whatever they're experiencing, whatever they're reporting this visualization of me putting myself in my own bubble and them in their own bubble, or even of making sure that if we both had sockets in each other, that they're unplugged, (laughs) you know, like they're not plugged into me and I'm not plugged into them. That was a meditation that I did for many, many months after sessions like you were just describing where I got off and I felt so so overstimulated and drained all at the same time. And I would just imagine 
pulling my cord like that vacuum where you just push the button and it pulls the cord in. I'd picture that from my patient, my cord coming back to myself, their cord going back to themselves, and then thinking of both of us as grounded, all grounded energy. If I'm in the middle of a session and I notice this is happening now, I immediately come back to my feet and I really imagine my feet on the ground and I'll scrunch my toes a couple times. And usually after that, I end up taking like a deeper cleansing breath automatically. And it means I'm back in my body again. I've left the anxiety of floating outside of myself gone that I got to go. I got to help them energy because the fixer comes along with a lot of anxious energy for me. It's a very ungrounded place to be. And that is really hard when I'm working with someone else who struggles to be in their own body. Mm-hmm. That is a really hard. It's it's easier when someone is really firm in what they're doing, but so many of our pelvic pain patients are not well grounded and don't know how to embody themselves. And when I'm in that type of energy, it's it's like a volcano meets a tornado to quote Eminem. I mean, it's just you know, things could get out of hand yeah. real quick. You're feeding off of each other's energy. And instead of you yeah. being present and grounded and stable for them, it's like this weird escalation. I think we've all experienced that like escalating energy. And by the end, you're like, holy shit, what just happened in that session? Like, that was awful. Like, nobody's upset, but it just felt bad. Oh my gosh, I've definitely yeah. been there. Well, that kind of sounds like the Fixer 101. Is there anything else you would throw out to wrap up the topic? I think the only thing I would want to throw out there is that it is so hard to change this in yourself. Even when you become aware of it, it's not this instant process of I'm shedding this fixer identity and moving on to becoming something more evolved like a guide. It's going to depend on where you're at that day. I find that when I'm operating at my highest levels, I'm able to be that calm, grounded person. And when I'm having a shitty day and when I'm stressed or I'm behind on my notes, that fixer comes out in me and it's something I constantly Mm. am playing a tug of war with. I don't feel like it's ever something that can be fully gotten rid of. I think it's just something to be conscious of and aware of as you go through your day. The more that you can develop awareness of this, you'll have a better interaction with your patients at work, better boundaries with your work, and a more satisfying job overall. Yes, uh, I hear what you're saying. Definitely. It's never a binary. And this is on a spectrum too. So you might identify with a lot of what we're saying. You might not identify with a lot of what we're saying. If you made it this far and you don't identify it with it, <laughs> wow, um, great tolerance. But if you stuck around this long, it's probably because you feel it too. And you're thinking, hmm, that's me. I wonder what I do with that. Great question. We're trying to unpack that as well. And I'm sure that we'll continue the conversation in various ways. Step one, be aware of it. 
Once you're aware, you can make a new choice. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Let's keep the conversation going on Instagram at The Conscious Clinician and Facebook backslash The Conscious Clinician. Links are in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and write a review for the podcast to grow our community. Stay conscious, everyone.